I wanted to give a few little pieces of personal gratitude. And if you want, you can imagine me here like Brad Pitt. I know that's not a far stretch for most of you. Receiving an Academy Award and feeling some pressure because there's all these people I want to thank and the music's about to start playing and I'm going to leave somebody out, I'm sure. So I won't mention everybody by name, but the one group of people I would like to thank, I'm going to use Henry Henniger's recent letter that he emailed to college students who helped us with this building project. And the reason I'm going to read it is because I suspect that many of you got this, but email is an antiquated technological format for all you youngsters, I imagine. It's so like 2005. And so I don't know if you all read your email or not, but here's what Pup sent you. He said, hello, co-laborer. On Halloween of 2010, you honored the Lord in Rock Creek Fellowship by pledging dollars to improve the facilities at the Durham site. I had hoped that all the seniors would see the finished work before graduation. Alas, the reality was delayed, but the work is done and paid for. Your participation is historic. I thank you again. I hope you will remember the important part you played in leveraging your generosity with the older members of Rock Creek. We older members surely do remember what you did. And many of you helped the move-in work last Saturday. Thank you for that extension of your generosity. As the second oldest man at Rock Creek, this is what he said, not I. As the second oldest man at Rock Creek, is the oldest man here? He is. He just identified himself because I forced him into it. As the second oldest man at Rock Creek, I am thankful to be associated with you generous youngsters. As the second oldest man, I do not understand Facebook. <laughs> Great line. But for some reason, I have a page there. His grandkids tricked him into it, I think. And yesterday, I posted some photographs. For those who have not seen the completed work, you should be impressed with how well the addition complements the original building, outside and inside, and how welcome the new seats are in place of the ladies' room that used to be in the worship space. Please look at the photographs, and please be assured the pastors and officers are grateful for your help. On behalf of the session at Rock Creek Fellowship, I am your grateful clerk, Henry Henniger. I wanted to let Henry speak on behalf of our session to you college students who contributed in a leading and exciting way for this project that we just did. I also wanted to personally thank, and I know he and his family are here today, Michael McGowan. There's Michael. Michael and Lindsay are here, and Michael was the architect who drew up the plans for the, the new space, and we're really thrilled with how everything worked out. I wanted to thank Terry Barker with whom he works at River Street. He's not here today, is he? But Terry Barker helped us in a phenomenal way as well. I want to thank Michael and Beth Warren for their kindness. And Michael has overseen this process. He's been kind of our liaison for Rock Creek with the builders and such. And also, Calvin, are you here? Shout-outs to Calvin Ball and Tower Construction. And also to our Lord, because look, so far as I know, you aren't about to leave the church, right? They just built a project. We were in a project with them. And as so far as I know, everybody still likes each other. That's fantastic. Don't you still like us? We're friends. Okay. 
It's really wonderful. Well, I wanted to thank them. There's a whole host of people who did administrative things. Alexis Wismer will never get any great credit for the voluminous amount of administrative financial detail keeping she does. And if she weren't doing it, it would be done very badly, I assure you. And she does a great job of that. So many elders and deacons and so many of you have helped to make this a reality, and, and I appreciate it. I appreciate also all the donors. I don't know who they all are. I know the first donor was Abigail Jones, and she gave about a dollar oh three. She's nine, or is she ten? Nine. Is she nine? She was the first one, and I'm thankful for all the ones after that who've made this a reality. It's been a beautiful thing to behold. As I thought about what to do today, and I thought about the sermon series we've been working through, in fact, that I had to do something else at the Lula Lake site, I thought, how can we make a tribute to God and still somehow coalesce with what we've been doing? And I think Psalm 77 gives us a, a segue into that. One of the things we've been talking about for the last few weeks is being catechized by affliction, how our sorrows, our anguishes, our deprivations, the ways that we don't get what we want, how those things can be teachers from God's hand, how we can, as John Newton said, learn the happy art of extracting good out of apparent evil. We've been talking about those things. And one of the ways that the psalmist does this, and this is just one example in the Bible, it's done all over the place, is... The psalmist urges us to to figure out how to change our perception of our present suffering by reflecting on God's past involvement, on God's past activity, by using this function that we have as people who bear God's image called memory, where we actively call to mind where we reassemble things that we have lost hold of in order to buoy our hopes and cause celebration even in the midst of things that would make us weep. I'm kind of thankful today to be so genuinely excited because I think this is a part of what the Christian life is. Here I am in week eight of my hell rash, and yet I am filled with rejoicing that's been handed to me by God on this happy occasion. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what the Christian life is like. As you're trusting God, you're receiving from Him and hoping in Him in the middle of having a hell rash. All life is not one, but frequently it is. Well, I preached a similar theme to this many years ago back at a nursing home. And this woman in the back, not the woman who would sit next to the man who would, Scott Jones will remember this, tap his watch to make sure you knew that you had exceeded the graces of the residents of that nursing home. But this woman, after I had given this message, which makes me inspired to give a similar theme today, said to me, well, she wasn't as loud as that, her voice was not as deep, well, you're getting better. You're no Billy Graham, but you're getting better. That's what she said to me, 1998 or something, no, 2000, I don't know. So I, I have great confidence in what I'm about to say. 
What's interesting to me is that this psalmist is looking around his life and he's seeing no evidences of God any place. He's an insomniac, he can't sleep. The inner storms are so great, they, they can't even be articulated. All he can do is kind of groan. He's praying and praying, but it feels like his prayers are hitting bolted shut doors of heaven. They're ricocheting off the ceiling. God's nowhere listening. God's nowhere to be found. He starts to wonder, as we do, when our most severe kinds of anguish don't let up. When our most debilitating kinds of malaise don't undo. We start to wonder if God really cares about us. If he's really paying any attention, or if he's finally just gotten sick of us, that's it. I can't handle the way you are. You're so doggone selfish. I'm out of here. We wonder if he said, and this is what the psalmist says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Will he, or has he forgotten to be merciful? In anger, has he just withheld his compassion altogether? Has his unveiling love vanished? Is this air that we need to breathe in order to have something to do with the one who makes all of life go, has that air dissipated? Are we left on our own as cosmic orphans without any hope from God to undo this mess, to remake us? And whether you can articulate it like that, I know that there's some of that that lingers and hangs around in your mind and soul when you start to wonder where God is and think about your suffering. But here's the trick. Here's what Asaph does, this psalmist. As he sits there and thinks about his present reality, which is admittedly quite bleak, and some of your present reality is quite bleak, he says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do while I'm groaning. I'm going to think back to another time I'm going to alter my present perception of my reality by casting my memory back and putting back the pieces together of how God has acted in history. The God who never changes. The God who is always the same. I'm going to think back to another time when people were groaning. And so he thinks back to the Exodus story. He says, to this I will appeal the years of the right hand of the Most High. Right hand is power. God's unassailable strength. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I'll meditate on all your works. I'll let the activities of God and all the minutes of our history be mulled over in my mind. Instead of just churning over and over my own dissatisfaction, I'll churn over and over and over again the kinds of things I know that God has done in the past. I'll meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. And then he goes on and talks about the way that God rescued his people from Egypt. And you know that story starts with his people being sore oppressed, groaning, crying out. And God, whose ear is forever perked toward his people, even when it feels like it's not, he hears their groans. 
is concerned about them, raises up a deliverer for them, and starts this magnificent process of rescuing them. Well, I thought what I would do today is, in a way, do what this psalmist does, meditate on all of God's works, but I'd meditate on them here before you corporately with some of the ways that we have seen his mighty deeds, some of the ways that we've seen him and therefore can now be encouraged. I will meditate, he says, on all your works. I will consider all your mighty deeds. The first thing is this. In these ten and a half years that I've been here, and at the end of this process where we have this new space, one of the things is I meditate on all God's works that gives me great cheer in the midst of disorientation and confusion is that it's God's dream, not mine, that binds people together here at Rock Creek. If you're in the new members class, you heard us talk about this. This is an idea I got from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says many times a Christian community will come together because of a human's wish dream. Church planners and churches are always having visions and dreams and aspirations of what they're going to become. Church planners are the most annoying people on the whole entire planet Earth in talking about their visions for their church. What's your vision, man? What's your mission? What's your vision? You got a good mission statement? And Bonhoeffer says if God loves us, He won't let us live in imaginary worlds. He won't let us come up with our own dreams and walk into the Christian community with our own dreams. And when the Christian community doesn't look like we want it to, say the doggone thing's a failure. You're not living my dream. He says, hopefully what will happen is God will disillusion us with ourselves, with our conceptions, with one another, even with Him, so that we can live in reality, the reality that He is forming and fashioning. And one of the things that's been most encouraging for me over these years is to see that this work here at Rock Creek is something that maybe even in spite of us, and often with us, and sometimes against us, God has done stuff. He's built a church. And it's his dream, not mine. One of the things that I think about, even as we sit in this place that's full, is that if you had been with me in a church planting course, such as I took in seminary, I don't know why, because I never thought I would ever be involved in the church plant, you would have heard the professor say something like this. Make new mistakes. You're going to make mistakes, but just make new ones. Like every, Don't do the same ones that everybody does all the time. Learn from other people. But you know what? He didn't even have on his radar screen the mistake of trying to have a church plan in a barn. He didn't even think to warn us against that one. And probably the first rule of church planning should be do not try to locate a worshiping community in a space where there are more trees than people. I'm so excited that we're in this magnificent space, this place of rest, this place that God has brought together, this place where God draws people in and heals them and changes them and sends them out because 
I thought it was a dumb idea for us to come out here. Not dumb. I was thinking, this is not going to turn out well. We're going to leave half the people at the Westboro community, so they're going to get lost. They're going to drive off the mountain or something. I was wrong. Seven years ago, that's when we moved here. And I was wrong. And now there are two sites of Rock Creek worshiping together. And I'm thankful that Jesus knows what is best for our church. It's important to remember when you're in anguish that it's Jesus who has an intention for your life and for the life of His people. And it may not be apparent to you. It's His dreams His visions for the future, not yours, that are determinative. That's a really helpful thing to know. The other thing is I meditate on all God's works and consider all His mighty deeds, all the ways that He's resourced us and supplied for us and drawn people into us and used us in this community. Here's a second point that I would come up with. Prayer is a strange, baffling Difficult thing that feels like nothing, but it is an incredible mechanism for unleashing the activity of God. If I were asked, and I will not ever be asked, and so do not worry, to write a book about church planning, I guess it would have like two pages, or maybe one. I'd say, take the advice of Jack Miller who said, pray twice as much as you think you have time for. If you're an idiot, that's my addition. If you don't know what to do, if you realize that everything concerning the conversion of people, the assembling of a community of mercy where people care more about each other than themselves, where they're willing to be generous with their lives, boy, you better pray lots to Jesus to see if he can't make something of it. Because you won't be able to probably. It's amazing to me as I meditate on God's mighty works to think about the fact that we called some congregational meetings together as we were trying to get this building underway. And when the fundraising process slowed down, we called these meetings, we were praying, and not just about that, but we were praying about that. And we had this congregational meeting where one John Conrad stood up here and was reporting on our progress. And fundraising, reporting on the progress of our plans. And he subtly reminded you, or at least notified you, put you on notice that we would have new bathrooms. There wouldn't be no longer a walk of shame here in the sanctuary. But those bathrooms may not have stalls. There might not be doors. There might not even be toilet paper. Who knows? Because we were out of money. The money wasn't coming in. He didn't put it that drastically but it was something like that. Well, it's amazing to me that, that a few days after that meeting, we, were, we just needed to get over this hump. I, I got a call from someone, and normally when I get a call from someone who needs to meet with me quickly, it is 132% of the time bad. They've either got a problem with me, a problem with the church, a problem with themselves, a problem with the wife, or with the husband with the boss, they've got a problem, there's something urgent, and it's always wrong. It's always bad. It's always bad. So I agreed to meet with this family and went into the situation thinking it was bad. Maybe I'd been warned it wasn't bad, but I 
this, this, these folks said, I just want you to know we love what's going on at Rock Creek. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? People love what's going on at Rock Creek? We love what's going on at Rock Creek. We like what's going on. And we just want to, we just want to finish off the, the building pledges if we can. That, that gift and some others that week came in and finished off everything. And my response, you know, inwardly, I don't know what I said outwardly, was, are you sure? <laughs> That's a lot of money. Are you crazy? Well, they were crazy. And they were moved by a crazy Savior who does outlandish things like have something to do with us. And he's been amazing to answer prayer. And so when I start to wonder where he is and I start to wonder what's going on, I can think back to all these ways that I've seen him work. And even as I was joking at the beginning, to have one of Calvin's guys at Tower Construction say, it's really been a blessing to work up here. We've really enjoyed working up here. I think that's, that's a reversal of the fall. That's an answer to prayer that a guy would like working here for a church. I don't think most people like working for churches. We're gnarly people. Prayer is strange, baffling, and difficult. It feels like nothing, but it's an incredible mechanism for unleashing the activity of God. And we have seen that over and over and over again in our church, and I'm so thankful for it. And as I consider... As I continue to consider that, meditate on all the works and mighty deeds of God, the other thing that, that jumps out at me is this astonishing fact that some people have been so acted upon by Jesus that they're willing to give up important things to them because they value what He values. That's incredible. If you think about it, if you think about that any church can raise a budget or that any church has people that will actually do things for free, that people will give up their time to bring children into their home and take them in as their own, even though they didn't give birth to them, that people will care for the poor around them, that people will be so seriously altered by Jesus that they'll start caring about things that they wouldn't otherwise have cared about at all. And when I think back on this project... One of the things that's really stirring to me, really beautiful to me, and makes me heartened about God's activity, even in the midst of suffering, is that I've seen people, even our leaders, who didn't necessarily want to do this project. But you know what was most awesome to me about that? Is that we had, it was, this is not widespread, this is like, I won't tell you numbers so you don't start guessing. But I saw guys who weren't on board with this, say, but it's important that we be unified. And so they submitted themselves to their brothers. And not only that, but they worked diligently for this thing they didn't really even care about. Because they cared about God's people. Because they cared about unity. They cared about keeping their oaths. And it teaches me, it reminds me on this day of celebration what a lot of us need to learn, and suffering is somehow sometimes the best teacher, unity is not something we get by magically having the same mind about everything. I think we often think unity in the church will happen by us having all the same drink, and then suddenly we'll all think about everything the same way. Then we'll be unified. Well, by God's kindness, sometimes that happens. But, and more helpfully... In your marriage, at your job, with your roommate, with your children, with this church, 
if you're in leadership, if you're in a group of people trying to decide things, you know how unity comes about far more often than the magical way I just described? It's by somebody submitting to somebody else. It's by somebody giving up in order to value what's precious to somebody else. It's the way of the Savior. And I've seen it in our church, and I say, praise be to Christ. Because he alters people that they'll do that. We have people at Lula Lake, at our Lula Lake site over there, who gave money to this project, so I would assume. They're never going to participate in this jazzy new space. Why would they do that? Because they were part of us. We're part of them, and they took that partness seriously. I've been so surprised and so thankful to see that people are willing to give money. They're willing to give their time. They're willing to give their hearts to make this church a reality, to make this building addition a reality. It's been magnificent to behold. Some people love Jesus so much they're willing to give up. And when I think about all of God's works, it encourages me in distress as Asaph And I together meditate on all his works and consider all his mighty deeds. And the last thing I think that I'll say is this. There might be two more things. Death, I've said it a lot here before, death precedes life. Groaning gives way to rejoicing, but if you want rejoicing, you're probably going to have some groaning first. Liberation implies some sort of captivity. When Asaph thinks through to what God has done with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. The waters saw you and they writhed. The very depths convulsed this frightening and violent situation. The Israelites had been sorely oppressed, badly beat down, horribly treated. They were slaves. And the sweetness of God's rescue came about because of the The onerousness of their previous condition. My first three years here, some of you have heard me say, and it was only three years, so it wasn't that hard, but my first three years here, I thought all the time about whether I was doing the right thing. Sundays were the most miserable day of my life for three or four or five years, so that's not long. Because I would preach, and then the rest of the day, I would think I probably should go sell shoes. I stink at this. I'm destroying God's people. There's no reason I should be doing this. I I don't even know if I could sell shoes. And I would wonder these things, and I was constantly worried, and I was working myself to the bone and trying to make sure everything stayed afloat, thinking that this church and all its welfare rested on my shoulders. I I didn't explicitly think that. Implicitly, I thought it. And I had a friend who once said to me, you know what needs to happen to you? You just need something actually bad to happen. (laughs) Not imaginarily bad, just actually bad. Like, you need to fail at something. I was like, what? I don't want to fail at anything. Well, right after we moved into this spot, God almost killed me. And I took up residence while Kathy was pregnant with Ander in Erlanger Hospital for two months where it was horrible. And 
I realized during that time that I do not wish to repeat, O Lord, hear my prayer. I do not wish to repeat. I learned during that time when I did not have the capacity to pray. I had no spiritual appetite. I felt miserable nearly all that time. Felt like everything was ripped out of my hands. Something broke in me. Something changed in me when I came back. And I realized, though his method's severe, God had done something. And somehow or another, when I came back, this church was still worshiping. Strangely enough, almost like the morning sun, which somehow or another comes up without me, this church had continued to be a church without me. Which reminds me, hey, maybe this is Jesus' church and not mine. And that's a great comfort if you start to believe in Him. That you can succumb to His cares. And even when there's great deprivation in your life that that's generally preparation for something else. Oh, it's an amazing thing. I would never want to repeat it, but I am perversely thankful for it. And I said that was the last thing. This is the last thing. When you think about meditating on all his works and considering his mighty deeds, listen to what Asaph said. The water saw you, O God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. He's giving a poetic description of God leading his people through the Red Sea. A terrifying scene. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The divine warrior's arrows are lightning. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. And I think if there's ever a clue or key to figuring out how to extract the good out of apparent evil, you've got to learn to see God's activity even when His footprints are not seen. And so I'd put it this way. Just as the Israelites saw, even though they saw not His footprints, and God was leading them out of their captivity, leading them into a new kind of life by a God whose footprints they could not see, that guidance, and you've heard me say this before, this is Tim Keller saying, guidance isn't something that God so much gives as something that He does. It's an important distinction. We're people, especially in our suffering, we want to know what's going to happen. We want to know what the future is going to be. We want to know what we're supposed to do. Please tell me. And when I meditate on all God's works, and I meditate on all the confusion and the disorientation and all the, the trouble and affliction that is all around us, we pastor people, church people, we broker in sorrows. We deal with busted promises. We deal with people and their sins. We deal with guilt. We deal with hurt. We deal with rancor and disagreement and disappointment. But yet, God, even when we don't know what to do, As we trust Him, He's leading. As we trust Him, He's guiding. As we move forward sometimes in faith, not sure if it's right, we look back and say, look what God did. We have to become like sleuths of His mercy 
trying to identify his hidden footsteps, leading us. So many things have happened in this church over the years that I'm grateful for. Almost none of them happened by plan. Almost all of them happened by surprise. Well, by surprise to us. Not by the one who led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We have much to recall. We have much upon which to meditate when we are sunk in our affliction so that our present perception can be changed by thinking about all the ways that our God has acted in history because the God who acted in history will act in our future. And that is our good hope. Let's pray.